came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. I'm Brendan O'Brien and today is Tuesday the 17th of November 2020. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. At the top of each month we have an interview with a respected astronomer, astrophysicist, space scientist or particle physicist. Then in the middle of the month we bring you Dr Ian Musgrave's Sky Guide for the next four weeks where he previews celestial observations for naked eye observers telescopers and astrophotographers. We also include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible as we work our way through this COVID-19 crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. So right now, we'll hear from Ian Astroblog Musgrave over in Adelaide, followed by his astronomical tangent. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How are you going? Very well, thanks, Ian. Great to be speaking with you again. Can you tell us... What's up in the sky for the next four weeks? Well, there's a lot of things up in the sky for the next four weeks. Uh, Many of the things that are up in the sky are still actually in the sky. So this particular month's sky guide is going to run from November 16th to December 17th, rather than the 16th, because there's a particular event that I want to highlight and make sure that everyone has plenty of run-up to it. And I'm also going to give a shout out to December 21. We're going to see something that's really unusual. And again, even though this will be covered in the next Astrophys, uh, I just want people to get mentally and physically prepared because you're going to see something spectacular in the last few weeks of December. Cool. So for this four-week period, most of the action's in the evening skies. So let's start off with the moon, as I do. So the new moon is... November the 16th. The last quarter moon is on November the 22nd. The full moon is on November 30th. And for us in Australia, it's a blue moon everywhere except in Western Australia, who had their blue moon last month. Sorry, Western Australia. It's also a penumbral eclipse, which is for everywhere except Western Australia. Sorry, Western Australia. You had the the blue moon uh, last month. So we get the uh, penumbral eclipse and the, uh, and the blue moon this time. The first quarter is on the December the 8th, and then again the new moon on the December the 15th. The moon is at Apogee when it's furthest from the Earth on November the 27th, and at Perigee when it's closest to the Earth on December the 13th. 
let's move to the other things of the evening sky. Now, Jupiter and Saturn have been our constant companions for many months now. And if you've been following them over the past few weeks, you'll be noticing that they're slowly edging together. And it starts off on uh, November the 16th with Jupiter and Saturn less than a hand span away. And this pair are dominating the northwestern early evening sky from sunset till nearly midnight. Uh, they don't actually set until after midnight because they'll be very low to the horizon. You'll find that buildings and trees get in the way and it'll be hard to see it unless you happen to live next to an ocean. Sadly, the window for seeing Jupiter and Saturn in a telescope is now restricted to a couple of hours after sunset because they're getting uh, so low to the horizon, even though you can see them quite nicely, the atmospheric turbulence makes their uh, images just too, too um, roiling to get decent telescopic views. Even so, you'll still be able to see the bands of Jupiter and the dance of, of um, Jupiter's moons quite nicely. And even the Saturn's wobbling around in turbulence, its rings are still lovely. And of course, Saturn's moon Titan while not as exciting as the Galilean moons of Jupiter, it's still rather nice to watch. Very good. We've got more coming up. So on November the 19th, Jupiter and Saturn uh, and the moon form a triangle. Uh, the crescent moon is going to be very close to Jupiter. So the, uh, the pair and the crescent moon will easily fit into a telescope, uh, into a binocular uh, field. Uh, if you've got a wide field telescope eyepiece, you might be able to get the uh, crescent moon and Jupiter in it together. Of course, Jupiter will just be a dot with moons, but that'll be well worth it. Uh, and if you have a setup with binoculars, so you can take photographs through your binoculars, that's going to look really nice. So that's a, that's something to to look out for. Excellent. Then on the twentieth, Jupiter. Saturn and the, and the uh, waxing moon form a line. That's going to be beautiful too. Now, the moon is going to move towards Mars, but as the weeks go on, oh, Jupiter and Saturn come closer. And the reason why I've extended this to December the 17th is because on December the 17th, they're less than a finger width apart with the crescent moon back again. And that's going to look really, really good. Fantastic. The uh, three of them together will really fantastic. And the reason I'm going to shout out to the 21st, even though we'll be going to do this in our next astro, is, is on the 21st, Jupiter and Saturn are 0.1 of a degree apart. Now, I'll remind you that the moon's diameter is 0.5 of a degree. That's half a finger width. So this is spectacularly close. And the pair are going to be visible in high-power telescope eyepieces. So we'll be able to see the bands of Jupiter, its moons, and the rings of Saturn all in a telescope eyepiece. The bad news is that it'll be fairly low to the horizon, so you have to start your viewing shortly after civil twilight and then into nautical twilight to have your telescope high enough above the horizon to actually be able to see them before they go behind trees or something like that. Yep. Again, this is a shout out. We're going to do this again. I'll give you more details, but just remember, keep your eye on Jupiter and Saturn they're getting closer and closer, and they've got uh, two beautiful meetings with the moon, which will be absolutely brilliant. So what about Mars? Now, Mars was really spectacular at opposition, and I've even been able to get some uh, images with it with my telescope when the sky has been uh, clear for 2.5 seconds. 
Now, it's readily visible in the northern sky in the mid to late evening. And, of course, there's virtually nothing bright next to it, so it really stands out. And on November the 25th and 26th, the waxing moon and Mars are close. Not spectacularly close like we've seen with Jupiter and Saturn, but still, if, you, uh, if you're wondering what the bright red object next to the moon is on the 25th and 26th, that's Mars. And once you know where Mars is, you'll be able to keep on looking at it. Now, Mars is fading and it's also shrinking. So if you've got your telescope out, you'll be able to notice that it's uh, smaller at the end of the month compared to the beginning of the month but it's still looking really good. And you can still see, see some nice details on it. So it's well worth having a look. Again, in binoculars, it just looks like a, uh, a tiny disc. You can't see any features, but even in a small telescope, you can still see markings and features. You won't be able to see the polar caps unless you've got uh, a really decent telescope at the moment. But uh, one of the problems I've been finding with my telescope is that Mars is so bright it's a bit hard to see any features because it's so bright. But I mentioned at the beginning uh, of when we, were, when we were talking about Mars that uh, sometimes it gets completely obliterated by dust storms, so you can't see any features. That's not happening this time. We've got no big dust storms, but it's just so bright that you have to really adjust your eyes so that the brightness fades a little bit and you can see detail. Yay, Mars. And that, that's the evening sky, and, and so... Bright planets in uh, the evening sky, very happy for quite a while, but the morning sky is still okay too. Uh, now, there's only two bright planets in the morning sky at the moment, Mars and Venus. Mars will leave the morning sky after about two weeks. Well, it will still be in the morning sky, but it'll be in the very early morning sky. So when you're looking, if you want to get up around about nautical twilight or so, by the end of the two weeks, Mars will be gone. But Venus is still there and it's low to the east. Now it's been moving uh, from, uh, from Virgo and, that, and it will then in, enter Libro and then go into the head of Scorpius. Of course, because it's quite low on the horizon at the moment, it's going to be a bit hard to see unless you've got a really flat horizon. Or, uh, but it's still bright enough so that uh, by the time civil twilight comes, half an hour before sunrise, it's still very obvious to see. Now on the 13th, Venus and the Crescent Moon are very close with the moon a hand span from the horizon at nautical twilight. So that's the 13th of December, and they'll look really nice. So that's our planetary action. November the 30th is the, a blue moon for the central and eastern states of Australia. If you're uh, listening in from overseas, for most of the northern hemisphere, you're not going to have a, a blue moon. You had your blue moon last month, but for uh, Australia, uh, parts of Papua New Guinea, New Zealand, Hawaii, you'll have a blue moon too. But we also get a, a penumbral eclipse. Now, penumbral eclipses, less exciting than partial eclipses or total eclipses of the moon, because the moon is passing through the outer shadow of the Earth. Now, because Earth has an atmosphere, we don't have a very crisp shadow. We have an extended shadow. And so you have an inner dark shadow and an outer less dark shadow. And so Earth's passing through the outer less dark shadow, but we're actually passing relatively deeply into the shadow and getting close to the fully dark shadow. So you should see a halfway decent dimming of the moon. That's the good news. The bad news is that for us in the central states, 
mostly the eclipse occurs with the moon just rising and it will be deep in the twilight. So eastern states have the best view, uh, but for all states, the eclipse starts with the moon below the horizon. So should be visible as a definite fading, subtle but definite fading of the, uh, the moon. After you've had uh, dinner or uh, an early, early dinner and watch the moon rise and, uh, and, and uh, wait for the moon to start going dark. Again, because of the penumbral eclipse, but your moon won't go fully dark, but you'll see a definite darkening of the of the moon. Very nice. Okay, but that's not that's not all. Uh, we have two meteor showers coming up. Now the Leonids are the incredibly famous meteor shower, where every couple of decades or so you get a uh, a decent meteor storm. Uh, sadly, tragically, we are well away from the uh, uh, peak that occurred in 1999 to 2001. And so rates are very, very low. Probably a meteor every half hour, maybe a meteor every quarter hour, during the cycle of Leo. And I'm not really excited about getting up at three o'clock in the morning to watch a meteor every 15 minutes. If you are a, a dedicated meteor watcher, sky's gonna be beautiful, You've, you'll have, um, uh, Orion in the sky, it'll look lovely, but I probably won't uh, get up early for that. What I'll be saving myself is for the Geminids. Now, the Geminids occur on the morning of 14th, their, their peak in Australia is on the morning of the 14th of December, around about 2 a.m., which means you can stay up partying till about 2 a.m., or you can get up very early at 2 a.m., and uh, we've got roughly a meteor every two, every two to three minutes. This is a good year for, for Geminids for us, got no moonlight interfering. The rates either side on the 14th, okay, but not anywhere as good. So you probably see a meteor every six minutes on the morning of the 13th and the morning of the 15th. So the Geminids have a really nice peak this year on the morning of the 14th, where a meteor roughly every two to three minutes. Of course, you'll, uh, you're more likely to see, uh, you'll see more if you're in a dark countryside site, and of course, if you're in the suburbs, you'll see less. And if you're in the CBD, what are you doing there? Go out somewhere dark. Okay, so that's, that's uh, what's going on. We've got planet dances, penumbral eclipse, blue moon, nice meteor shower. And also at, the, at uh, this time, if you're looking south in the, from Australia, you'll see the large Magellanic cloud in an excellent position for viewing. And if you look in the look at the large Magellanic cloud, which looks exactly like a a bit of cloud that feels moving, you'll also see a, a brightish patch in there with a pair of binoculars, and that's a tarantula nebula. And the, with uh, a decent uh, telescope, you'll see this magnificent detailed patch of glowing gas. For those of you in the northern hemisphere, look to the north, and the Andromeda galaxy will be in an excellent position to view again that the Andromeda galaxy is a galaxy that's bigger than our own. If it was as bright as the, as the moon, it would occupy a, a, a space larger than the moon uh, in our sky. It's a very extended object, but because it's dim, you, you'll need a, a pair of binoculars to see it properly. And so those are the stars. And there's, again, there's lots to see and uh, 
uh, lots of action. So uh, whether it's the moon, the planets, or the stars, or the meteors, you've got so many things to choose from to watch over this next four weeks. Very good, Ian. Step outside and look up. Now, do you have a tangent for us for this episode? I do indeed. This tangent was inspired by the relaxation of the restrictions in Victoria as the COVID lockdown has gone. But at the moment, there's two decent comets in the sky. Uh, There's Comet C slash 2020 M3 Atlas, which is currently wending its way through Orion. And it's going to be very easy to see over the next few days when this broadcast goes out because it's very close to the bright star Bellatrix in Orion. Uh, the brighter comet, uh, it's about magnitude 8, so uh, it's just about the limit that you can use to see with a, a pair of binoculars under suburban skies. Uh, comet uh, C-2020S3 Erasmus is, is brighter. It's uh, around about magnitude 7.5 at the moment, but it's also very low to the horizon near the constellation of Corvus the Crow. Uh, now, it's predicted to become uh, uh, visible to the unaided eye later on, uh, late November, early early December, but it's going to be very low to the horizon and can be quite difficult to pick up. So for comet enthusiasts, there's a, a couple of nice comets to see. But and our fascination with comets has been around for as long as humans have been humans. Now, of course, on the rare occasions we've seen bright comets with their tails streaming across the sky, they've uh, inspired fear and awe. And now they're imagined as being fiery, but they're anything but that bright tail that, that you see and the bright coma, actually super cold dust and gas, uh, boiling for want of a better, a better word of a tiny icy nucleus. And they're, even though they, they look impressive, they're basically a glorified vacuum. Only a bit denser than the vacuum, that they, the, the harder vacuum of, of the uh, solar wind that they're immersed in. Now, we've known for some time that comets are dirty snowballs or icy dirt balls composed of dust and ices. Now, the exact proportion of dust to ice depends whether they're coming into the inner solar system for the first time or a regular return is where the ice is a bit steadily evaporating away, which each return. Now, when I say ice, I'm not just talking about the familiar uh, water ice that forms uh, large chunks of holes, but frozen carbon dioxide, which is a large portion of Mars's uh, poles. Also frozen carbon monoxide, methanol, and ammonia. And the dust isn't the sort of dust you find in your, in your house, but it's a, a mixture of minerals like silicates and tar-like organic complexes. Dust might be a little bit of a stretch when you're talking about something that is basically like molasses. So we know also that comets can't actually be solid all the way through. They're not a a large chunk of ice or a large chunk of of rock with ice over it. But what we didn't know whether or not they were piles of icy rubble, like the uh, Ben Owl and the uh, Rugu, which have just been visited by Hayabusa 2 Osiris Rex, and Hayabusa 2 is on its way back with samples of, uh, of Rugu and Osiris-Rex will be coming back with its samples uh, of Beto very shortly. So they're not, they're, they're, they're not rubble piles in that sense. So are they 
large chunks of uh, material with big spaces between them, or are they fluffy? So this is where we remember remember Rosetta. Yep. Uh, how we were uh, absolutely riveted by this the uh, 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 orbiter, the orbited comet at 67P Churamov Gerashvenko, which I'm never going to say again. I'm going to call it 67P from now on. So Rosetta orbited the comet in 2014 and 2016, and it gave us just some amazing views. And then it launched the tiny lander Philae on November 2014 to perform the first soft landing on a comet. Sadly, tragically, the harpoons that meant to hold the lander down didn't fire, and the lander bounced. In fact, it bounced three times, scooting over the surface of the comet. And in fact, Rosetta captured a shot of the lander sailing past the, the cliffs, and then the uh, lander was lost until July 2015 when it started communicating with Rosetta again for a, a, a few a short while before being lost. Much, much later, Rosetta would be with the image fillet wedged in a crevice in a cliff face. Now, in that brief time of contact, fillet's instruments determined that 67P was, was fluffy. Not chunks with voids, but fluffy. But exactly how fluffy? So some recent detective works uh, by the investigators from the Rosetta mission gave an answer to that. Now, this comes from understanding where Rosetta, where Philae went when it bounced. Now, we can work out the basic trajectory of the speed because we know where it bounced first. We've got images of the, of the first bounce. And we know where it ended up in the wedged in, a, in the cliff. But what happened in between? And so what they tried to do was work out where and when the bounces happened using the data from the magnetometer. Now, the magnetometer isn't actually a really good uh, device for doing that in one sense because the magnetic field of, um, of, of um, the comet isn't that big. But what happened was every time that the, the lander hit and bounced, it caused the magnetometer to wobble and they could pick up that wobble. And from the, the duration of the wobble, they could work out where it landed, when, for how long, and, and they could also work out how fast the delay was traveling. And so with that information, they can work out the exact trajectory of Philae, work out where it landed uh, for each bounce, and then follow that track using the images from Rosetta. And what they found, they were able to locate a gash of brilliant white ice with Philae had scraped along the surface. And from the images, they were able to work out first that certainly uh, the surface had been uh, pulled off, and then the surface had been depressed from uh, Philae uh, impacting it. Now, knowing how fast Philae was moving, how much it weighs, the, the gravity of 67P, they could work out exactly how fluffy 67P was. Cool. And it turns out that 67P is very, very fluffy. And which is where Melbourne comes in because it's about as fluffy as cappuccino foam. Hmm. Uh, and that's, that's really fluffy. So when you look at uh, 67P, it looks really solid. It's got cliffs, it's got boulders, and they all look impressive and solid. But that's mostly due to the fact that they're coated in tar. Despite the fact that they look very bright in our sky uh, when we have a, a really good one, the comets, the nucleus itself is very dark. In fact, it's darker than coal, but much darker than asphalt, for example. 
So, but those boulders that look so impressive and so solid, under their high hydrogen carbon crust, their porosity is about 75%, which means they're basically holes. So there's more hole than, hole than boulder and no more substantial than seafoam on beaches. So next time you wander around along a beach piled high with seafoam uh, after a storm and kick your way through the, through the foam, you're basically uh, kicking your way through the equivalent of Comet 67P. Yeah, that's fantastic. So next time you're out, out of the cafe, uh, uh, when you're out of lockdown, raise, raise a cappuccino to 67P, the foam kind. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astro Blog Musgrove. It was my pleasure. And I, I again, I love, do, love doing this and just being able to share this incredible piece of information about the, the comet it, it's it's i love it so much and i love sharing this information with everybody excellent <laughs> thanks ian no worries all the best indeed bye. take care mate you too all the best cheers bye and remember astrophys is free and unsponsored and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And another great astro podcast is The Scientists with Kirsten Banks and Dr. Ankel Lopez Sanchez. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro Blogger website. Till then, isolate. Take care, look after yourself and your loved ones. And please, do wear a mask when you can't socially distance yourself. Radio 1